0: I sure am glad to be here with you today, and I'd like for you to open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs chapter 23, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about the power of you, the power of you. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, as a person thinks in their heart, so is he. You know, we've heard it said that the person thinks that they can and the person who thinks that they can't, they're both right. How you see yourself on the inside determines what you become. I'm going to say that to you again. How you see yourself on the inside determines what you become. If you believe that you can't, you won't. If you see yourself as unable or inferior, somehow not measuring up, somehow not capable, then you won't. Literally, when we think about it, our mind, through our words and thoughts, are painting an image on the inside of us of ourselves and consequently determine the perspective that we have of what's going on around us. A lot of people adopt a victim mentality. Well, you know, you see what's happening in the economy. You see what's happening here. You see what's happening over here. Well, you see where I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever the case might be. And without even realizing it, they become a product of their environment. They become conformed to this world. But isn't it interesting that the Bible comes along and teaches us, Romans 12:1 and 2, says, "I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship or service." So we see from the get-go that God wants more than just hands raised and a voice crying out or singing a couple times a week. You know, we think, like uh, Pastor Aaron said, that, um, you know, we, sometimes we think that, 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 that praise and worship is what constitutes giving God glory. And it's part of it. I mean, it does. It honors God when we do. But Jesus is a little bit more radical than that. He came along and said, It glorifies God when you bring forth much fruit. He's talking about a progression of things from, from fruit to much fruit and that our fruit would remain. So one of the things that we see in the kingdom of God is that God has a purpose in mind for us being born again into His kingdom. And that purpose is that we bring forth much fruit and that our fruit would remain. Well, think about it for a minute. You know, anything that's alive produces after itself, reproduces. Right, it's not as dead. I mean, really, the only purpose in in nature for for life is for reproduction, more or less. They'll produce after themselves, pass on that life to the next generation or the next, you know, growth cycle, whatever. So it's the same in the kingdom of God. God wants us to be fruitful in His kingdom. Why don't you look at somebody and say, "God wants you to be fruitful." And I didn't say fruity. I said fruitful. There's already enough of those granola bar Christians running around in the kingdom. You know what those are, don't you? Those. Fruity, flaky, and nutty all rolled up into one package. And a lot of times they, they disguise themselves without even realizing it using spiritual terms. I say that's a, that's a good amen right there. You don't mind that I got the interpretation of that. You know, we hear things like, um, for example, let's say a Pastor Aaron comes up and asks you to get involved in something. Or like he did today. stood up here and talked about different opportunities to get involved in the church. And let's say you're not involved doing anything right now. Well, first of all, I don't think it's a, it's a right picture of the church for 20% to be doing all the work, and the other 80% just kind of drift through coming and going. And let's say that maybe he comes up to somebody and he personally asks them, Hey, we need help in this area. Would, would you like to get involved? And, and we hear this phrase... This phrase, used a lot in Christian circles. We hear, I'll pray about it. You know, Jeff Foxworthy has all these, you know, uh, these redneck things, you know, jokes. And he's got that uh, whole redneck dictionary with words like mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, a lot of people in here today. I think they're funny. You know, you might be a redneck if you cut your grass and find a lawnmower in the front yard kind of stuff. Well, I think what I'll pray about it really means is no. It's just a spiritual way, we think, for Christians to say no. Because first of all, if we... I mean, I don't even know why we'd have to pray about it in the first place. God gave you a brain. And if you're not doing nothing, here's an opportunity to do something. And the way you glorify God is by doing something. I mean, even if it's wrong. I'd rather be out doing something that's wrong, and, and uh, if you will, or maybe not necessarily... Sometimes we view things that maybe not our cup of tea as um, unnecessary. But if we really look at the progression of things in our journey in life, many times it's those things that are preparing us for what God ultimately has for us, or our cup of tea, so to speak. And we try and circumvent some of that and never get the cup of tea. I wonder what's wrong. So if we looked at it, then realistically, what would that look like? We're going to go home, get in our prayer closet, and and God, should I do this, or should I not do this? And what kind of a a res, what form would that response take? What are we really looking for if we would pray about it like that? For God to have to show up and tell us we should do it? We so hyper spiritualize these things. I mean, if there's an opportunity there, and I'm not, and, and, and getting involved in the kids' ministry is one of the ble- best, I mean, the best opportunities you could have because, I mean, you can make mistakes there and get away with them. You know? I'm not talking about, you know, just messing up the minds of the little ones, but I mean, you know, they're a little bit more forgiving. Easy going about it all. But we use this, you know, Well, I'm going to pray about it. And without realizing it, becomes a license or an excuse to shirk responsibility. I think it's ironic that we'll get out of church and maybe this might happen today. Somebody comes up to us and says, Hey man, let's go over to McDonald's and get a Big Mac and a Biggie fries and a Biggie drink. And we don't hear at that point, "Um, I'll pray about it. (laughs) We probably should step back and pray about that a long time. But we don't pray about that. Say, yeah, man, let's go. Why do we so hyper-spiritualize these things in the church? You know, another one is, you know, like, um, I'll be praying for you. I think that I'll be praying for you just really means goodbye. Because most of the time we use it when we're leaving. You know, I'll be praying for you. Doesn't mean I'm really going to pray for you. It's just a spiritual way to say, later. Bye. I'm out of here. But it sounds nice. The reason that I'm saying all of that is that sometimes I think we really sell ourselves short. I think really God looks down on us if we would even end up in our prayer closet, quote, unquote, you know, kind of thing. Crying out to God to try to get his wisdom on whether or not we ought to do that. And God is probably saying... I really wish you'd use the brain that I gave you. I went through a whole lot of, I would expect, um, thought and creativity of giving it to you. The complexity of it, I really wish you would use it. Make a decision. You know, God has created us as free moral agents with the right to choose, and he won't take away that right from us. God didn't create puppets on a string that, you know, that he's controlling. I've heard a lot of people stand up and say, you know, well, God's in control of our destiny. But I always think about it like this. It's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? Come on, right? It's not a trick question, right? And there have been men and women who have died and gone to hell, right? Well, how did they get there? That's not God's perfect will for their life. God didn't control their destiny. Oh, unless we believe in predestination. They were destined to be there. Islam uses that all the time. Well, if it's a will of Allah. Or if it happens, it's a will of Allah. If it doesn't happen, it's a will of Allah. But it shirks the responsibility. To the contrary, God has put that responsibility on our shoulders. He's given us the right to choose. We can choose to do it or we can choose not to do it. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, I mean, there's times where the Holy Spirit might rise up within us and say, you know, you know, I'm just not comfortable with that or, you know, it leads us to, you know, maybe to draw the conclusion that, you know, that, that's not for us or, um, you know, I, I just don't feel that's a good fit for me. I'm not, you know, all that's a part of the decision process anyway. But I like to look at it like this. I heard an old Older ministers say something like this one time. God doesn't have any red lights. I mean, God doesn't have any green lights. He only has red lights. I mean, if you don't get some kind of a red light in front of you, go for it. It's a green light for you. He, he's already given you the go. Right? Go ye. Look at somebody and tell him he's talking about ye. He's talking about you. So he's already given us the go part of it. I tell you, every every church member, I think, of course, it's just my opinion. I think it's based on scripture, but just my opinion. I mean, the best that I know. I don't know a whole lot about a whole lot of things. That's why I just try and stick with the simple stuff like I heard somebody, you know, say, this dude was trying to teach on the book of Revelations, you know. He said, you know, we're just going to raise... I don't know anything really much about eschatology. It's too complicated for me. We're just going to wade out into the book of Revelations. And sure enough, they they did and he drowned the whole group while they were out there. (laughs) Didn't make any more sense, you know, than... I mean, all the, I don't want to chase too many little rabbit trails here, but all the fighting that has gone on over whether the rapture is going to come before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation. You know, to me, it really doesn't matter. Just make sure you make it. You have your view on it, but it doesn't matter. Just make it. Get all bent out of shape. You study church history, and, um, you know, there's a, a, a segment of the Pentecostal church that divided right down the middle over a necktie issue. I'm on the side of, really, I think we a to cast neckties and all that out of the church completely, but that's why I really appreciate your all's perspective on it here. But every, you know... Other places may not be as liberated as you all, and they may not have seen the light on it. No, they 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 split the church the whole denomination over a necktie issue. Some didn't feel it was right to wear bow ties. Leaders in the church. Now who gives a flippity flying flop? <laughs> what kind of tie you got on? I mean, really think about it. It's silly. Do you know why we're fighting over these little trivial things? That there's over one, according to the Joshua Institute, this group that studies uh, these things, trends, and different people groups. That th- there's over 1.6 billion, b, billion people that are still unreached. Over six. Thousand different people groups, many who have never heard the gospel before. Sometimes, if I'm telling you, I'm glad I'm not God because if I was God, I'd just throw in the towel. Because we've got 97% of all the ministers ministering to 3% of the world's population. While 3% of, I I refer to them as, you know, these pioneers, the the old plows, if you will. Those who are called into full-time, long-term, cross-cultural missions work that are Willing to lay down their life for the cause of Christ and willing to suffer the hardship. See, one of the things with this culture that's so detrimental to the cause of Christ is it propagates a a philosophy of comfort. You know, you don't have electricity for a while and, man, it's a bad thing. But, I mean, when we first started out in this thing in 1993... I mean, we lived the whole year and maybe had electricity for one or two hours a week in one of the hottest regions of the world. Cooked out back on coals, slept on air mattresses on the floor, didn't have fans, bathed out of buckets. But, I mean, we've got people in the church that are willing to quit over hangnail. You let it get a little difficult for them... Hey, I didn't sign up for this. You know one of the worst things that, have ever happened, that ever happened to the church is when Constantine legalized Christianity. And the essence of it was, really, I mean, it was great because Christians weren't thrown to the lions anymore. That kind of thing. But people started aspiring into the church for the wrong reasons because he elevated the status of the church almost with the state. But the main thing that it really did was that no longer did it cost people something to be a Christian. I mean, prior to that point, if you professed your faith in Christ, you were simultaneously laying down your life. And then all of a sudden it gets so convenient, it gets so easy for us. And, and, and if we're not careful, what we really endeavor to do is, is, and I'm not advocating, you know, just, you know, living in a constant state of suffering by any stretch of the imagination, but we advocate almost like a doctrine that's designed to get us out of any suffering as if there's some utopia that can be created here on this earth. And I hear these faith preachers sometimes stand up and talk about all of this, and I always, all I can think about is, hey, that didn't work for Paul. Go over to 2 Corinthians and read a little bit about his experience, experiences in chapter 12. Man, that dude was stoned, left for dead. And you know what? If you really study it out and go back to Acts and everything, you find out that he went back after he was stoned, left for dead. Went right back into the same place. A shipwreck, night and day in the deep. He's beaten with rods, whipped three or four times, whatever it was, 39 lashes. They tell us there's uh, a whip called the cat of nine tails. Um, that it wasn't, you know, one of the single strand things, you know, where you just crack it at the end of a person or an object, and it inflicts some damage. It had these, like, strands, maybe leather strands or something. that had sharp objects kind of somehow implanted into the end of it, so when they hit the person's back, it fanned out and pulled off pieces of flesh as it came away from the back. Wasn't a fun experience. When you think about those Christians that were in Acts chapter 16, that they were beaten, thrown into prison... And they started praising God. Say what? I mean, sometimes we, if God doesn't come through fast enough for us, man, it just, this thing don't work. I think really we ought to adopt the philosophy that, you know, God doesn't owe us anything, we owe Him everything. Say, what? God doesn't owe us anything. We owe Him everything. If He's really done what He said, or what the Bible says that He's done for us, He sent His Son to die for us. His blood was shed for us. He became the supreme sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. has given us eternal life. I mean, we know where we're headed. Right? I mean again, I'm not trying to say that that there aren't provisions in this covenant, that there aren't promises there that God's promised us. But I'm just talking about from our, um, at least from my personal perspective of it. God doesn't owe me anything. I, I owe him everything. And I think we as Christians ought to be in it for what we can give to it, not for what we can get out of it. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a time when we first get into it. Maybe, man, we just need to You know, we're getting our life all possibly put back together. And, you know, getting the broken pieces kind of pieced back together and and all of that. But sooner or later, God wants us to grow up. And start accepting some responsibility for this thing that we're involved with. Isn't that right? Right? That's not a trick question either, man. I'm telling you, that would be. But we use these kind of things sometimes like that, I'll pray about it, to put all the responsibility for all of this over upon God's shoulders. Well, if God wills it to be done. Well, if it's the will of God. And what I want to say to you this morning is, you're doing, and you will do, according to the way that you see yourself on the inside. You don't see yourself capable? You're not. You see yourself capable, and I guarantee you can become that. And when I really think about it, if... if I would go in my prayer closet and pray about God, you know, whether I should do some task or help out and get involved in something. I'm doing God a disservice. I know that sounds real unspiritual. Maybe it kind of goes against a religious grain within us. But again, I believe God, it's almost like a slap in the face to God. He says, man, I, I, I've given you a brain that they tell us we're only using about 10%, uh, 10% of it anyway. It's how amazing it is. Use it. Make a decision. You know that indecision kills, and that is the underlying devastating current behind this. I'll, I'll pray about it. It creates indecision. Indecision just stifles. It, it It does nothing. I mean, it just... I'd rather step out and do the wrong thing. Endeavoring to do something right. You know, like they say, it's easier to steer a ship after you've, get, after you've gotten it moving. Or a train after it's moving. It's hard to get things started. I think God just wants to get a whole lot of it started jump-start something on the inside of us, so we can see the bigger picture of what's going on around us. You remember uh, the disciples when Jesus told them to get in their boat and go to the other side? And um, so they got out in the middle of the, sti- uh, the sea, and the winds and the waves and everything was you know, strong, and they were getting tossed all around. And Jesus came walking on the water up to them. A couple of things really interesting to me about that. One is they didn't recognize him. Fear distorts. They didn't even recognize that it was him. To the degree that they had to say, Peter said, Lord, if that's really you, And another thing that really interests, and I think is very interesting about that passage is, Jesus spoke one four-letter word. Come. That's all he said. Peter said, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. Jesus said, come. As long as Peter believed that one four-letter word, he got out of the boat and began to walk on the water because he believed that, Word, come, enabled him to do it. As soon as, you know, he got out there, he started looking at the waves, and his mind started playing games with them. But, I mean, you know, I know this is, uh, poor Peter, we get to analyze all of his mistakes. Um... But I know this is stepping back and looking at the uh, situation. But if you really analyze it, what does calm water have to do with walking on the water? You can't do it when it's calm. Just fill up your bathtub and try it. I mean, you know, you could think the only time I guess you can walk on the water is when it's stormy. Because I sure can't do it when it's calm. But that fear opened the door to doubt and Peter started sinking. Jesus had to come over and pick him back up and the first thing that he said to him is, Why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt? And I think... God's still saying the same thing to so many of us. Why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt that you could do that? Why'd you doubt that you could make a difference? I mean, just even in the simplest stuff. I remember years ago just uh, standing in the grocery store line and feeling like I was supposed to tell the person that was in front of me that, you know, Jesus loved him while we were standing there, you know, checking out. Try to witness to them uh, a little bit. And I still remember thoughts like machine gun bullets going through my mind. Yeah, they're not going to receive that. You don't know enough to tell them, blah, blah, blah. Just like machine gun bullets. Think about this with me for a minute. If somebody came through those back doors, busted through those doors, ran up here to the front of this church and held up a picture of an AK-47 and said, give me all your money, I'm robbing the place. Come on, you'd probably do what you're doing right now. That picture doesn't have any power. Unless you're dumb enough to believe it. Buy into it and cough it up. But that image of doesn't have any power in and of itself unless I give it the power. So if I have an image that comes up in me that's, Contrary to what God says about me. I have a choice. I can laugh it off and say, man, that doesn't have any power. The devil always, or our unrenewed mind, whatever it is, always wants to bring up our past and all of our failures to us and present that image before us and say, because of that, you can't. And we have a choice. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. <laughs> like I heard this one minister say, you know, you know, you can't stop the birds from flying over your hair, but you can stop them from building um, over your head. But you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. You can't stop thoughts from coming to your mind sometimes, but you don't have to let them. Nest there. Just because it comes to your mind, and it may be a picture of something that was real, the good news is: first of all, the Bible says any man being in Christ is a new creature. And if I did do it wrong, and I recognize it, and I ask God to forgive me for it in Jesus' name, then it's under the blood. So. God's not seeing it anymore. You know, the Bible talks about it being cast into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west. Well, they never catch one another. So if God's not thinking about it, why should I? Really, the greatest battles... That we fight here on this earth is right between our ears. Over in uh, uh, the book of Corinthians, I think the, that first letter in chapter 4, I think it is. No, I'll take that back. It's in Second Corinthians in, in chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 4. Paul talks about that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, to the casting down of imaginations, to the bringing into captivity. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Well, there's a progression there. You can actually read it backwards. Backwards. As a matter of fact, let's just go over there. I want you to see this. Go over that passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. And verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds. Now, where are those strongholds? What are those strongholds? I remember reading about some Christian group. They were renting airplanes and flying over their city, casting down the spiritual strongholds over that city. Well, that's probably one of the stupidest things I've ever heard of. First of all, what difference would it make if I'm here on the earth or up there five, 6,000 feet to a spiritual world that's not defined by dimension. What difference would it make? None. Whatsoever. And they miss the whole point when you read through this passage of Scripture. The strongholds are in our minds. He said, "For." The weapons of our warfare, not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down a stronghold, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every cap- thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So here's how it goes then. Thought comes into our mind. We accept it. Begin to think up, about it. It becomes an imagination. We can start imagining that. It evolves from an imagination to a stronghold. It'll work on the positive or the negative side of things. Once it's entrenched within us, it's a stronghold, it's hard to get it out. Paul said, look, if you take this in context of what Paul's talking about, he says, what I want to do is be prepared to refute, because in his day, you know, they'd get together and, some neutral location or building or whatever, and uh, debate ideas. He wanted to refute, make a good argument about why Jesus really was a son of God. And in order to advance the gospel... He had to be able to change the belief system of a people group, and, and it's you know, you know this that this, you know uh, converts are made. I mean, excuse me, are, are are born, but disciples are made. It's a it's a whole lot harder to make disciples those that are really disciplined followers of Jesus. What time do you normally get out of church? Let's have to look at the clock. Huh? 1240? 12, oh, 1230? i got nine more minutes. And <clears throat> but I'm not sure I can and get it all done in nine minutes. How many of you give me, after that point, Five more minutes. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. I got this side up. Already Already got me covered. No, I can be better than that. Um, I have to watch it, really, to not ramble. Um, I heard this... Uh... Oh, watch out now. I heard this... Uh... When I first got started in ministry years and years ago, back in 1980, there was this, um, it was a, uh, a Church of Christ minister in the town. And we were buying their old building. It wasn't old, it was old for them. They had built this new, beautiful facility. And uh, But I was, you know, talking with them several times and I asked him one time, you know, how long do you normally teach or preach for? He said, well, when I'm really, really, um, you know, it's like I got my A game going. It's about 20 minutes. I'm, you know, bringing in my B or C game. It's about 25 minutes. When I'm really off the mark, it could go over 30 minutes. Well, according to that, you know, I'm off the mark big time already. But (laughs) the point is, you know, some people could just talk all day and not say anything. Not, you know, trying to impress anybody with uh, the length of anything by any stretch of imagination. Because I'm smart enough to know that once your seat goes numb, your brain goes numb along with it. (laughs) We need to get you. And plus, we only remember maybe 10% of what's said anyway. And and if, if you can grasp anything this morning, it's this concept of thinking about ourselves the way God thinks about us so that we can see ourselves the way God sees us so that we then can do the things that God would have us do. Thinking about ourselves the way God thinks about us. Well, again, if there's an opportunity to do something in the church, how does God think about us? He thinks you can do all things. Hey, he created you that way to start with, and then he put the Holy Spirit on the inside of you to kind of like give you a double whammy, a double enabling Well, let's go ahead and stand to our feet. Um, I I think uh, the thing that I would really like to communicate today is that God doesn't have a welfare program. Jesus said, I mean, you just keep getting something for nothing. And I'm all about, you know, people getting assistance when they, when they really need it. Please stay with me on this. When they really need it, but to just stay on it generationally creates nothing more than institutional dependency. And it stifles the potential within the person, the individual. And furthermore, and this is, I'm rambling again, but Furthermore, if they can work, they ought to be out doing some kind of community service. Picking up trash off the side of the road, whatever it might be. If they're they're able to do that kind of thing. Because number one, you'd feel better, they'd feel better about themselves. Our government's made it such that it'd be crazy to get off of government assistance. As a matter of fact, did you know that our government actually pays people to go out to solicit people to get on welfare? Pays people to go out and sign people up to get free phones? Did you know that? That's the craziest thing. Our tax dollars paying for other people who don't want to go out to work to have free phones. As far as I'm concerned, they can get two tin cans <laughs> and a string. <laughs> hey, you better. God doesn't have a welfare program. You remember um, Matthew chapter 24? The parable of the, uh, the master that had uh, servants that he gave, uh, dis- uh, uh, distributed different quantities of gifts to. To one he gave five, to the other two, to the other one. Everybody got something. Everybody got something. You got something from God. And I'm going to tell you furthermore, God expects a return upon it. And if you want to glorify God, bring your return back. Because when you get to heaven, all those, man, those excuses aren't going to cut it. God, I told him I was going to pray about that. Think about this with me for a minute, a a quick minute. If you go back in the Old Testament and read the story of when God told uh, this prophet to go over to Zarephath, the Bible says there that, For I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee, Now, it's interesting because there was a famine in the land, and that little widow woman didn't know anything about it. As a matter of fact, that is, she didn't know anything at all about sustaining the prophet. As a matter of fact, she said, I can't do that when he asked her to go make him something to eat. I can't do that. I've just got a little bit of flour, a little bit of meal, and a little bit of oil. I'm going to make this thing for me and my son, and then all hope is lost. We're dying. There's famine in the land. But the Bible says that God commanded that little widow woman to sustain him. I looked up that word command, and it actually carries the implication of set in motion. God set in motion for that little woman to sustain him. Well, what if she didn't obey? I mean, was there a plan B? I don't know. Plan C? Somebody else didn't come along? My thinking is that nobody else can do what God has set in motion for us to do. And the point that I want to make is there's a domino effect in all of that. We step out to do and other things start happening. Other things start falling into place. I mean, can I just be just kind of like brutally frank? If we're alive, if we're really Christ-like, reproduce. Do something. I recognize that, you know, the Bible says some water, some Or some plant, some water, and some, you know, reap. I mean, water. Plant. Reap. Be a part of the mix. Do something. Because the whole tendency of this world is for us to be conformed into its its image. To be a carbon copy of the rest of the world. The rest of the world's concerned about this temporal life right here, right now. Not that these things aren't important, but God says, listen, you step back as one that's Christ-like and see the bigger picture. You fight that battle between your ears so that you're not conformed to that kind of thing, that you recognize, yes, you have responsibility, yes, there are Issues to deal with. But in the bigger picture, I have a higher calling. I have a higher calling. And if we lose that perspective, we become just like the world in regards to our pursuits. We're pursuing ours. And opportunity for do something, you know, for God comes along and well, we're going to pray about it. I don't I don't understand that mentality. I, I don't understand that. You know sometimes we hear these uh these phrases like you know we're going to pray for the for the rain to come. I wish it would. I wish we'd all get watered and nourished and what happens when a plant's watered and nourished it grows and it produces? I took a survey one time in a church and I just asked them to write down on a piece of paper, we used that, what would that look like? The, the glory, I'm praying for the glory to fall or to fill this house. I'm praying that God, what would that look like? What would be the effect of that? I got some of the strangest answers you could imagine. But most of them just repeated that whole thing that the, they would say something like, the glory would fall then and fill the house. What's that mean? I mean, is it, oh, it means that we couldn't stand up and we'd have to fall prostate. I mean, you know, that's all it is? Is there something more to it than that? It means that, you know, the building would look like it's on fire and that people all around would come to it. Or some of the strangest concepts. And it leads it to this this mindset where we pray and ask God to send in the lost. God, we're fasting and praying for you to save the lost. Send in the lost, God. God. God's up in heaven saying, I've already saved them. They just don't know about it yet. I've left you here on this earth to go tell them about it. That's our responsibility, not God's responsibility. God's not going to fill the house. That's not going to get the job done, because if that would get the job done, it'd already be done. Isn't that right? doesn't work that way. It's our responsibility. My, my prayer is, and my hope, I should say, for, for all of you, is that you'll not shirk your responsibilities. In the day-to-day ebb and flow, I guarantee you'll have opportunities if you look for them. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Father, we just thank you for this day today, and thank you for the opportunity to gather here today to to uh, hear some things about your word, and hopefully some uh, things about your perspective of us and the world that we live in, your perspective of us um, Bringing a return back to you upon the gifts that we receive, which just really means we can affect our sphere of influence. We can make a difference right where we're on, right where we are. we can influence other people around us. We know we 've got jobs and responsibilities, and you know we can't you know just stand. Uh, or um, maybe just witness to everybody that comes across our path, but but there are some that we can reach out to. There are some that are brought upon across our path that we can make a difference in their lives. We can plant that seed or water that seed so that one day that harvest in them is reaped. They can have the hope of eternal life that we have. Help us to step back, Father, and see the bigger picture. You told that one dude with the, the one talent that was given to him, and he was afraid, went and hit it in the ground. You said he was a lazy and unfaithful servant. Take that away from him. Give it to the guy that has five. And the moral of the story is that if you use what you've already got, and if you use what you already got, more will be given to you. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. I just hope that on the inside of you right now, you're making a decision. You're making even a commitment to yourself. I'm going to be productive in God's kingdom. I'm not going to allow these nice spiritual phrases to give me a a way out from doing my part. I'm not going to pass on the responsibility to somebody else. I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to be a contributor. I'm going to give of myself. Sacrifice some of my time. Use my talents and abilities to make a difference in God's kingdom. And I will be fruitful. I'll not allow myself to be conformed to the way of this world, and just seek my own interest. I, I'm here on this earth with a, a higher mandate, with a higher purpose. That along this, along this journey, I want to see things from God's perspective. I want to see the bigger picture, and contribute. To advancing the love of God, the word of God, the the gospel, through good deeds, through, I mean, you know, feeding the poor, um, uh, medical interventions, uh, Bible schools, crusades, whatever, children's ministry, driving a bus, whatever the case might be.